from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Well, after multiple weeks on the road touring the country for our 2021 College Roadshow, we are wrapping up the roadshow this week here in Columbus, Ohio. And if you can't tell by now, our final stop is the Ohio State University. A farm kid whose work ethic is now being recruited on the gridiron. It really comes down like to how, I mean, how my dad raised me. How this Ohio State football player connects his team to the farm. Just on the heels of the big COP26 summit in Europe, are carbon markets a sustainable tool for farmers? What we're finding out is that there's a lot of um, uncertainty and, and, and confusion in this market right now. Why one expert says farmers should look before they leave. Supply shock in soybeans. USDA's latest crop report shook up the markets, but that wasn't the only thing in Washington firing up farmers this week. All of that and more from our 2021 College Roadshow from Ohio State. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Well, the land-grant mission is definitely still center stage here at Ohio State, but there's a lot of news we need to cover first. The latest crop production report from USDA delivering some surprises this week. The agency changing both soybean and corn projected yields and production in the report. It now puts the national corn yield at a record 177 bushels an acre. Production, that's expected to be 15.1 billion bushels, up 43 million from last month. And for soybeans, yields were revised downward slightly to 51.2 bushels an acre, something that traders really were not expecting. Production for beans forecast at 4.4 billion bushels, down 23 million on those lower yields. Well, after months of negotiations, the U.S. House finally passed a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. But now the focus turns to passing the president's Build Back Better plan. Well, here's a look at what it contains. You can see that a good chunk of the funding would be used to improve roads as well as bridges. There's also money to update an electric grid, expand rail and broadband, and remove lead pipes. And congressional leaders say there are important things in the bill for agriculture having to do with conservation, including moving to greener technologies and innovations. While the fate of the controversial Build Back Better plan is unknown, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying they intend to pass the plan next week. But the Congressional Budget Office says it's yet to give a definitive date on when it will have a final cost estimate score of the bill. The current plan has a price tag of $1.75 trillion and includes funding for social and climate issues. Well, inflation is driving consumer prices to levels Americans have not seen in decades, with the Consumer Price Index spiking 6.2% this month, the highest since 1990. That's as gas prices are up more than 49%, fuel oil up 59%. Used cars and trucks, well, those are up 26%, which is the biggest jump ever. And check out the prices for food. All of those are up, with pork up 14%, chicken up almost 9 and beef up 20%. The dramatic rise in meat prices now being called meat Inflation is a result of labor and supply chain issues. That's as ranchers and livestock producers aren't seeing a rapid rise in cattle and hog prices at the same time. Well, several meat companies say this could help alleviate supply chain issues. USDA announcing nine pork plants will be able to operate at faster processing line speeds. They would be allowed to apply under a one-year trial. It comes after a federal judge in March struck down a Trump-era rule that removed line speeds. 
And four U.S. senators have compromised on measures they say will improve the cattle market. They are combining previous bills into one, which is called the New Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act. Under their new proposal, there would be regional mandatory minimum thresholds of negotiated cash and negotiated grid trades. USDA would also create a publicly available library of marketing contracts. Well, U.S. authorities are now working to extradite a Ukrainian man accused of being involved in the ransomware attack on 2,500 targets. That included the one over the summer on JBS. The 22-year-old man being sought by U.S. prosecutors was arrested last month at the request of the U.S. government as he tried to enter Poland from Ukraine. Earlier this week, Romanian authorities arrested two other suspects of cyber attacks in 17 countries using rebel ransomware. The U.S. Department of Justice said that FBI announced it seized a total of $6 million in ransom payments after the initial arrest was made last month. All right, that's it for the news. Well, you could call this weather a gift in November. Columbus, Ohio, seeing temps in the 60s this week, but it's not like harvest weather has been ideal. We will get a check of weather with Mike Kaufman. That's next. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Mike Kaufman. Mike, you probably wouldn't know it from our visit to Ohio State this week, but the weather has not really cooperated for many farmers in this area this fall. It's been an extremely soggy harvest here. Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, I think parts of the Great Lakes Ohio Valley did end up a little wet at times, which made it challenging to say the least to get some of those crops in. You can still see hints of that wetness parts of the area uh, southern Michigan into uh, Illinois and Indiana, but especially uh, Louisiana on up into the Tennessee Valley. Uh, that's been a wet area that has been in this general area all growing season. We're seeing a new dry spot there southwestern uh, Pennsylvania and also some dry areas still out west, but that's interspersed with some wet areas as well. Now, long-term drought is still pretty dry for the western third of the country on up into the far northern plains, but it has improved overall since the beginning of the growing season. There are still some dry areas in the plain states, but uh, you can see no major droughts really showing up. All right, let's go through this week. You can see the trough off the east coast uh, to start the week. That brought a shot of colder air and some snow. Parts of the Great Lakes Northern Plains, obviously. Next system kind of dives in as we head through the second half of the week into uh, Friday. And then we go zonal for a few days. But it looks like the trough may try to uh, redevelop over the Northern Plains and the Great Lakes by early that following week. Let's take a look at things as we go day by day this week. On Monday, there's the uh, storm system, Eastern Great Lakes, lake effect snow showers, parts of the central Appalachians all the way through the Great Lakes. Now, obviously the ground's still warm. You're not gonna see major accumulations, but there'll be some areas with a few inches, I'm sure, of slushy snow and rain and snow in uh, parts of the Northeast. And you can see the rain and uh, mountain snows as you take a look at the West. Most of the Southern states, on the dry side, some chilly, some rather warm in the southwest. Now on Wednesday, most of the southern states are sunny and warm. You can see a storm system moving quickly through the upper Great Lakes with some rain showers down through most of the Great Lakes and then snow showers north of there stalled out front with rain and mountain snows back to the west. By Friday then, we'll see that first system off into the northeastern part of Canada, another area of low pressure developing parts of the southeast. So some rain showers, maybe thunderstorms in that area turning colder again for the Great Lakes. 
chilly all the way down into the southern Mississippi Valley and a little bit of snow, mainly mountain snow, as you take a look at the northwest as we head through Friday. Let's take a look at the 30 day outlook for temperatures. We'll go below normal from North Carolina back to southern Illinois over toward the Mississippi River. And then above normal for the Northeast, much of Eastern and Central Canada, above normal from uh, Wyoming all the way through the Four Corner region and Western Texas. Precipitation over the next 30 days, a lot of the Southern states on the dry side, above normal Great Lakes in the, the uh, Northeast and the Northern Rockies into the Northwest, expected to be above normal as well. Time. Thanks, Mike. By the way, we know you are an unapologetic Purdue grad and Boilermaker fan, so I'm pretty sure I know which side of the field you'll be cheering on this week. Well, when we come back, three leading ag economists from right here at Ohio State set down to dissect a lot of news from Washington this week. From the USDA crop reports to infrastructure, that discussion happens next. Well, welcome back to our 2021 College Roadshow from right here at The Ohio State University. Some great ag economists joining us today. Sinki, I want to start with you because this week, big USDA report week, we did have a shock when it came to soybeans, an adjustment that apparently the trade did not expect. How much did the production picture actually change, Sinki? The overall production outcome is quite large still. Um, for instance, the corn production is over 15 billion bushels, which is a record high. And the nationwide corn, uh, average corn yield is about 177 bushels per acre. That is also a record high. So, and I think almost the same story applied to soybean side as well, um, although the projection has been slightly down. But, so uh, apparently farmers did pretty well, even though they had gone through pretty tough uh, weather challenges this year. Yeah, and when you look at some of those those challenges, at the same time, we're seeing some impressive yields demand. I mean, it's not what it was last year. So, you know, is it unrealistic to think that China will buy at the same rate that they did last marketing year? At this moment, it's, it's hard to imagine China will buy the same amount as last year. For instance, so even export shifts actually, actually showing about 33% down compared to last yeah. year. So um, maybe that is, probably because of the, the their like domestic demand has changed and uh, it's uh, at this moment hard to imagine like a big shift can change immediately from now on. Yeah, and when you look at the trade picture, I mean, you think that about the height of the trade war and how little we saw China buying and then last year just the monster buys that they made. You know, in this year, it's, it's kind of hard to remember what is normal when it comes to, to China buying. Well, China's still forecast to be our largest export market this year. So the, the ranking is China, Canada, and then Mexico, which is exactly what you'd expect here in, in North America with the North American Free Trade Agreement and just the fact that we're close uh, by uh, geographically. But China is forecast to be our largest export market. But in terms of the uh, U.S.-China Phase One Trade Agreement, which was signed by the previous administration in in early 2020, um, in terms of agricultural exports, it looks like for 2021 we're going to hit about 84% of the commitments that China made to import. So, and a lot of that's going to be dependent as we go out towards you know through the end of the marketing year, um, particularly how much corn and soybeans are exported to China. But if you look at exports to China across commodities. Soybeans are not hitting the target that yeah. they were expected to hit. 
but corn is way over target. We're talking about a thousand percent higher than where it was expected to be, along with our pork exports have been very strong to China and our wheat exports and our cotton exports. So you have to sort of look at it in the aggregate and buy commodities as well. Yeah, have perspective with that. Yeah, thank you, Ian. Well, Zoe, when you look at here at home, uh, you know, open up any paper, any website, any headline, and it's talking about food prices right now, the latest meatflation, looking at how fast some of these meat prices ha have risen. I mean, is there reason to believe that we will continue to see these, these meat prices rise at the consumer level? You know, I think that um, over time they're, go they're going to moderate. What we're seeing in general through, and we've seen this throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, is that supply chains are less predictable and that's really hard to adjust to. Right now we're in the holidays. A lot of people um, are trying to, you know, they want, they want their usual turkey. They want certain things that they're used to buying at, at this time. And both with the kind of increase um, in aggregate demand that we've seen, um, due to just kind of coming out of the height of the pandemic, plus these continual kind of like the COVID-19 pandemic rearing its head in meat supply chains. We're seeing the confluence of those two things. They both push prices up. So I do think it's gonna moderate over time, but we're gonna continue to have some uncertainty and sometimes what you want at the store is not gonna be there when you want it or not gonna be at the price point that you want. It's gonna take some time to get back to kind of a predictable level, both for consumers and uh, for producers. Domestic meat demand has been phenomenal. Do yeah. you think with these rising prices, it continues to stay that way? I do think that um, we're gonna continue to see people want to get back to some some um, semblance of normalcy. And that means, you know, we had had more like shelf stable foods that people were buying, people were really kind of hunkering down folks don't want to hunker down anymore, right? Food away from home prices are predicted to go back up in 2022, right? People want to get back out to restaurants. They want to see people. They want to have, you know, more of that, more of that normalcy. So that's going to, that's going to buoy demand. Well, one thing that's not normal, the supply chain. And so yes. we're going to get into exactly what's at play with the supply chain with all of our economists later on U.S. Farm Report. But first, let's take a quick break. Well, a new report shows consumer spending continues to surge, but are those consumers also saving money at the same rate? Here's John Phipps. The pandemic has been a goldmine of data and theoretical tests for economists. It's sort of a let's poke it with a stick and see what happens concept. The disruption of almost all economic activity here and around the globe provided all kinds of revelations that would not have been clear otherwise. One surprising result was a spike in the savings rates. Here in the U.S. last April, we collectively saved a record 30% of our income. Now, saving money is a good thing, as all of our parents repeatedly told us. But despite those admonitions, America has not been a land of savers, averaging around 7 to 8% over the last several years. Comparing to other countries, we just don't tuck as much money away. The starkest contrast is with the Chinese, who historically have saved nearly half their income. While well, saving is a personal virtue. When people save instead of spend, other people don't get any income. It's a tragedy of the commons type problem. What is good for individuals may not be good for the population as a whole. This is one of China's biggest problems in reducing their dependence on exporting. Without Chinese, the Chinese becoming more energetic spenders, exporting 
becomes a crucial market. Now the latest data show the Chinese consumer spending at about 55% of their GDP. In comparison, U.S. consumers provide about 70%. Looking back, it's obvious. When you're not going out, most face-to-face -face retailing slows drastically. Even the pickup in online retail couldn't overcome this spending collapse. We're feverishly studying why. Being cooped up, fear of the future, especially the end of going out to eat and travel, undoubtedly contributed, and there are probably many other factors. At any rate, the American public has stashed away unprecedented amounts of wealth. The savings rate has dropped back to similar levels as before, but the money the government poured into the economy, like the PPP program, didn't all get spent it undoubtedly did prevent a severe recession. Meanwhile, Americans have accumulated about $2.7 trillion in what are called excess savings. And we're not alone. There is about $5.5 trillion globally in similar holdings. This is new territory for economies, and we're really not sure what this stash means for the future. Next week, I'll explore what many economists think will happen to these savings and why, perversely enough, it may be a big headache for some time. Thank you, John. And as he mentioned, he will have part two of that discussion next week. All right, stay tuned because Tractor Tales is next. And later, one rising Ohio State football star got his start in the hay fields. That story later as our 2021 College Roadshow continues. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. Through extensive research, decades of expertise, and stronger industry relationships, it's easy to see why Stein has yield, plus so much more. Discover the yield plus advantage at steinseed.com. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're off to Rising Sun, Ohio to check out a classic Silver King tractor. And a special shout out to the members of the Silver King Club right near there in Plymouth, Ohio, where these tractors were made. This tractor particularly uh, belongs to the daughter and son-in-law. Their son has another high crop. Uh, there was only ever five of them made, and they have two of the five. Where are the other three are, not, are at, uh, we're not really too sure. Uh, they just recently bought this out of Pennsylvania, out of an estate. Like I said, they only ever made five of these. This was the start of the high crops back before John Deere and any of them knew what a high crop was. These were kind of made for the muck ground, which is close to Plymouth, where they grow vegetables. You can see that it's, it's a little bit different configuration. Some of them had 38 inch rubber on. This one's just got 28, but the, the spindles were higher and the front end was all changed around to uh, accommodate the cultivators to cultivate three rows of vegetables, radishes, celery, what, whatever. The favorite heath that, that manufactured the tractors also manufactured locomotives and clay machines. And they were a specialty shop basically, and, and kind of still are. Uh, you would come in, order what you wanted, and they would try and accommodate you and build it for you. And, and I'm guessing that's how this came about. Somebody said, hey, we need something like this that can, can straddle the, the vegetable rows and be more efficient than, than just a one row cultivator. This tractor's been restored. Uh, it's an older restoration. As you can see, it's, it's not rusty, uh, except for a few spots maybe where the paint has peeled, but 
Um, yeah, this is an older restoration. Uh, whether they're going to do much with it or not, I don't know. I, th I think they're pretty much going to leave it the way it is. A lot of people like it like that. I know I do. Uh, I like to see them in their, in their work clothes, so to speak. Well, when we come back, capturing carbon, is it a situation where the early bird gets the worm? That answer is next as we continue our 2021 College Roadshow from right here at Ohio State. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Welcome back. Well, it seems like every input in farm supply this year has seen a price spike from inflation and the supply chain chaos. But for small ag businesses, finding affordable and adequate health insurance has been a long-standing issue. But here at Ohio State, researchers are looking into the cost it's having on rural communities. The chase to capture carbon continues to gain attention across the country. What we're finding out is that there's a lot of uncertainty and confusion in this market right now. And one Ohio State expert says at this point, it's best to look before you leap. If you've been tillage intensive, you know, it's going to be hard to park that field cultivator or that vertical tillage tool that you've invested in. Mike Eastat says while he doesn't think the carbon market is the Wild West, full transparency is still a missing piece. There is no clear, verified, transparent market. It's not like the car, um, Chicago mercantile where we know how many contracts of corn were traded on a day and for how much. While work is underway to provide those answers, he says as long as someone is willing to buy the carbon credit, he thinks the carbon market will stick around. A lot of corporations have formed carbon uh, companies, uh, subsidiaries, or joined with other companies to buy offset credits. And so that's why agriculture, we, we know we can sequester a lot of carbon in our soils. Today, there's a couple quick ways to capture carbon. One would be planting cover crops because we know if we can increase the amount of biomass that we grow, we can sequester carbon in the soil. But the most recent USDA data shows cover crops are only adopted on about 4% of farm acres today. And while no-till is more widely used at a 26% adoption rate, when you add in other tillage conservation tools, the number is closer to 50%. The idea of using uh, livestock manures or using cover crops that fixate and put nitrogen into the soil, that's going to be a place where those folks may be able to be part of a carbon market. From improving water quality to other benefits of practices like cover crops, carbon contracts come with a legal obligation. Very different legal terms that they're dealing with, so that's one of the issues that we've focused on is helping them understand those terms because they are going to be in those agreements and those programs that they're entering into. Peggy Kirkhalk focuses on the legal side of the carbon markets for Ohio State. There are lines between what's pre-existing and what you're actually creating 
and trying to understand and verify and certify that, that you did, that the practices you instituted did actually create something of value. From proving additionality to verification and certification, she says the carbon contracts come with a host of obligations. I worry a lot about farms getting into these programs and not realizing that they could be creating long-term responsibilities and effects for the next generation. Uh, that's coming into that farm and that operation that maybe they haven't thought through who really has the legal right to do what. Kirkhall says that's why the farm transition also has to play a part in farmers' decisions. We need to have discussion between those generations on whether the next generation can live up to those commitments. ESAT tells producers that's why they need to be comfortable with the production changes and make certain it fits into their overall goals of the farm. They have to understand that they're going to have to make some wholesale changes possibly to how they farm. If you've never had a cover crop, and you shouldn't go out there and plant a thousand acres of it right away. And he says there are some contracts that come with a three or five year commitment instead of 25 to even 50 years. What happens if we would have had a wet fall this year and we had rutted out a bunch of corn or soybeans and you're seven, eight, nine years down the road in one of these programs and you go out there and do tillage? Well, I know the programs that I've looked at will tell you that there will be a suspension of payments until you can prove that that carbon has been re-sequestered that you released through tillage. And even then, farmers should ask one major question when venturing into the carbon market. There are programs out there that allow participants to take advantage of an increasing value in their credits. Maybe that would be something as you evaluate different companies. Uh, ask that question, if my carbon's worth $25 a ton today and it goes to 50, is there a way that I'm going to be able to take advantage of that? So that'd be a question you should ask the company that you're dealing with. Well, when we come back, speaking of policy and prices, our marketing discussion continues. That is next. Welcome back. Well, really digging into the supply chain right now, a lot of concerns about inputs. I mean, we've been talking about it with, with fertilizer prices. I mean, Sinki, when you look at, at heading into next year, is there a chance that farmers may not be able to source the inputs that they need like nitrogen fertilizer? At this moment, it is highly likely because the fertilizer price has actually increased about more than 100% compared to last year. So it's, it's really high rocking prices and even the lack of supply is making unavailable for farmers. So farmers may need to think about what would be the maximum return to the fertilizer application rate. So by adjusting the application rate, they can get the maximum outcome. And or the other way would be just planting more soybeans, which doesn't require as much fertilizer as corn. So that would be another option. Yeah, but at the same time, you're looking at things like glyphosate prices up 100%, oh, yeah. 200%, 300%. So, I mean, there's no right answer here, right? But as you look at it, in really what is at play? Is it just transportation? Is it just labor? You know, what is the biggest factor right now really putting a, 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 a crimp into the supply chain? Well, because I focus on the international supply chains as opposed to the domestic supply chains. So what what as a trade economist, what's really interesting to observe this year is that during the pandemic, global agricultural trade was very resilient. We didn't see much of a decline and it rebounded very quickly. But what's affecting trade right now in terms of, of costs is the cost of transportation, particularly marine transportation. In fact, if you look at 
transport costs out of both the Gulf and the Pacific Northwest, they've both doubled in the last year. And that's driven by what's called bunker fuel, which is the diesel fuel for, for the large bulk carriers. There's a shortage of uh, bulk uh, marine shipping capacity, and that's got nothing to do with the pandemic. It's got nothing to do with the global supply chain problem. We've had excess capacity in merchant shipping for a number of years, and that excess capacity has been run down. But right at a time we went, when we have this growth in demand and the other things going on in supply chains, that's really started pushing up um, transportation costs. Plus you have um, port slowdowns because of COVID-19. So if in the broader supply chain trade discussion, the story is mostly about containers. Where are containers? Empty containers going back to China. I didn't know this until I looked at the data, and I have to thank Ben Brown for telling me about this, but only 10% of exported commodities in agriculture go by containers. It's 90% goes through you know, bulk carriers. Um, so it's, that's what's really driving, uh, driving the transportation costs and slowdowns in getting in, in and out of ports. So, well, yeah, and, and so, you know, I'm talking to a, a producer in California. He said, you know, he grows grapes and he won't even risk exports right now because it takes so long mm -hmm. that the, the, the goods are actually, you know, not not even uh, good anymore once it reaches places like Asia. So when you look at consumer prices overall, report came out up 6.2% this year. That is the most since 1990. Food prices, is are those at the same level when you look at the consumer price index that recently came out of USDA? Yeah, um, a, a little bit lower than that is, is where we are at on average with the consumer price index. Um, from, from what I've seen, certainly um, for beef and pork, it's a little bit higher. That's where we're seeing the highest um, the highest prices. Um, and uh, what what we're, um, we're really seeing um, with prices, I think, is just kind of a natural rebound um, through the pandemic. So I think there's a lot of concern um, by consumers that they're seeing prices rise pretty rapidly. But a lot of that, I think, just has to do with that, with that rebounding, with that rebounding demand. But Ian, real quick, when you look at things like wheat prices, I mean, when you look at the consumer prices that, that, that we're seeing, you, can you tie that directly to some of the commodity prices that are at a higher level? There are three major subsistence commodities, wheat, corn, and soybeans. Obviously corn and soybeans are mostly fed to animals. So wheat is what gets consumed directly by low income consumers in develop, importing developing countries. And that's been driven mostly by uh, weather conditions. Canada obviously had a drought. Uh, there were poor weather conditions earlier in the year in Russia. Uh, Russia's actually been taxing its exports of wheat to, to keep down its own domestic prices, but that's been pushing up global prices. And there's been a lot of pressure on the demand side, particularly in the Middle East. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and other countries there have had poor wheat crops, and they've been sucking in wheat imports at a time when we have relatively low stocks of wheat. Yeah, definitely. All right, Ian, Cynthia, Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. We need to take a quick break, and then we will have much more from right here at Ohio State University. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. For more than 50 years, Stein has delivered the most advanced corn and soybean genetics available. Through relationships, data, and expertise, Stein has yield, plus so much more. Discover Yield Plus at SteinSeed.com. Well, it seems like every input is seeing a price spike from inflation as well as the supply chain chaos right now. But for small ag businesses like farmers, finding affordable and adequate health insurance has been a long-standing issue. 
Here at Ohio State, researchers are looking into the cost it's having on rural communities. So often this is not part of the story we talk about in agriculture. This is the elephant in the room. Shoshana Inwood is a rural sociologist and for the past decade she's been digging into how health insurance impacts rural economies. We're really focused on how do we build strong agricultural economies and a lot of times we focus on access to land, capital, credit and markets. Um, but the truth is for family farms, there's a family. Through the health insurance, crucial economic development and agriculture project, she says access to medical care is constantly top of mind for farmers. And when we surveyed farmers across the country, what we found is that um, over half of farmers are worried about needing to sell um, land in order to um, afford their long-term health care costs. Searching for a solution in the health care hurdles is one that Inwood says requires everyone to be at the table. That includes farmers, health insurance companies, farm organizations, and even USDA. But it's not just health care hindering rural economies. It's also lack of child care options in many small towns. One of the surprising things is that um, almost all the farmers who responded back, whether they were multi-generation, first generation, beginning farmers, all said child care is a huge issue. Inwood says the research revealed two thirds of farmers surveyed say child care is a problem, not just with availability, but also cost and quality. That's why she says access to both adequate health care and child care should be viewed as an economic development issue for rural residents all across the U.S. This is critical. This is one of the linchpins that's going to be affecting the ability for us to keep this farm running and for our, the future for our kids to take over this farm. Well, locking in inputs for 2022 is also creating some angst in agriculture, but is there a chance that you may not even be able to find the inputs you need? Customer support is next. Farmers are seeing sticker shock for things like inputs and fertilizer, and it's due to a supply shock. But is the U.S. actually at risk of not having enough inputs to even grow crops next year? Here's John Phipps. Rick Erickson asks a question that I've received in various forms in the last few months. China clearly intends to control Taiwan, and China will recognize the rights of Taiwan citizens the same way they now violate the rights of the people of Hong Kong. China has built islands in the South China Sea for the purpose of establishing territorial rights for fishing, oil and gas, and control of maritime navigation. China certainly seems intent on territorial expansion the way that Japan did starting with the invasion of Manchuria in 1937. At that time, the U.S. was selling scrap metal to the Japanese. The U.S probably regretted these sales after December 7, 1941. My question is this. If we are selling agricultural products to the Chinese and these products are produced with subsidies from the federal government, are we indirectly subsidizing a country that might become our enemy in a future war? Would our large-scale sale of food to China be possible without the American agricultural subsidies? Well, first off, I think the most important thing to point out here is the likelihood of war or even conflict with China is minimal. Despite spending vastly more in defense than China, our military faces an obvious and insurmountable problem with this idea. Taiwan is roughly 100 miles from the mainland China, and the distance between the U.S. and China is about 6,000 miles, depending on where you measure. The geography is reminiscent of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Bluntly put, 
any invasion of Taiwan by China would be over by the time we could get out of the harbor. While we do have a long-standing commitment to the Taiwanese people dating back to World War II, everyone involved realizes this agreement has always been diplomatically vague. The Taiwan military is modern and well-equipped, but when missiles can easily and accurately span the distance between the island and the mainland, the idea of an international war between two giants is a non-starter. The concern that we are supplying a future enemy was also common at the height of the Cold War when the USSR became a major U.S. wheat buyer. This worry overlooks the fabled bathtub nature of the commodity market. Regardless of political edicts like embargoes, China will get as much grain as it wants if they're willing to pay for it. As for subsidies, I've beaten that dead horse too often. As we're seeing this fall, subsidies tend to raise the profit level for input suppliers more than producers. I will talk more about political subsidy effects in the future. Thanks, John. And again, something we will continue to follow as the supply chain issues in agriculture continue. Well, when we come back from the farm field to the football field, a journey of one Ohio State football player whose ties back to the family farm are evident. That story is next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. While some collegiate athletes have natural born talent, but even with talent, it's work ethic that can help athletes score scholarship as well as win over fans' hearts. Well, that is the case for one current football player here at The Ohio State. And after you hear how he continues to instill his passion for farming in others, you just may be cheering him on this weekend, too. With number 16 stitched on his jersey. Hey, everybody. My name's Cade Stover. I live here on Silver Farms, which is my family's farm here in Lexington, Ohio. Cade Stover will tell you his identity is more than an Ohio State football player, even sharing that dream in a day in the life of YouTube video. When I do leave college, wherever, however long football takes me, I want to be a farmer. That's what I want to do. I want to farm. I want to grow this farm. I want to expand it. Cade's roots in ag are one generation deep. My dad's a first generation farmer. Uh, we raised about 110 head of black Angus cows for freezer beef. While the father's son have different views on their favorite part of farm life. I love the equipment grain operation of it. He loves the cattle. There's one trait they both share. I guess the work ethic really from growing up is, I mean, how I think I've excelled in that area. He says his dad, who has an off-farm job, raised him to work hard. And it's that mentality Cade also has mastered on and off the football field. I think being a farmer helps me in football just because, I mean, I try and bring a different grit, a different type of, a different type of toughness than other people have. And it's the farm life that fueled his mental and physical strength today. We're on a hay wagon and 90 degrees, you're in the hay mile and you think you're done. There's two more wagons sitting there. I mean, that's, you test yourself a little bit, you know. <laughs> During football season, Cade says he's all in, but in the off season, he spends as much time as he can on the farm. And I came home and I was thinking like, what am I gonna do for this time when I got some time off? So I decided I wanna show everybody what a day in life is of what I really do here on the farm. His love for the game and farm is contagious. And as he gives others a glimpse into the reality of farm life. Out the door, please. Go ahead, out the door. That love for the farm is something he's even passed on to a couple of his teammates. Steel Chambers and Bryson Shaw have came up a couple times. They're two of like my best friends. We were actually putting together like pipe fencing, like welding pipe fence together that we built up there. Hard work that both Steel and Bryce didn't seem to mind. Oh, they love it. 
I mean, they've never had any, never seen anything like it. But I mean, everybody I've ever brought up there is like, it's a different type of lifestyle that they've never experienced. But uh, once they figure it out, I mean, once they really see what it's about, they love it and are always asking to come back. Cade's love for the farm rivals his love for the game as an Ohio State Buckeye today. It's big and it's stressful sometimes, but I mean, that's why you come to places like this because, I mean, you enjoy, you want people to come after you. You want to hold your standard and keep it that way. And he hopes after college, those two worlds collide. Farm, that's it. Goal is play NFL for a couple years and come back and buy myself a farm and call it quits. A leader on and off the field, today his focus is on football. Let's hope it's win, that's for sure. With his goals this season also steadfast, a national championship within sight. Well, Kate is number 16, so you can keep an eye on him this weekend. And he says he has aspirations to be drafted in the NFL and his dream team, the Cowboys. Well, that does it for our 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow. A big thank you to Syngenta and Golden Harvest for sponsoring our roadshow this year, where we toured eight land-grant universities, showcasing how research and thought leaders are helping land-grant universities see some major wins this year. Well, next week, we're heading on the road to the Missouri Governor's Conference on Agriculture. The theme of grit and determination, well, that's been alive and well in Missouri this year. We will show you how that's at work next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.